This episode of The Pace Line is brought to you by Health IQ. As a cyclist, you ride your bike, you stay in shape, and you take care of your body. So Health IQ believes your healthy lifestyle should be rewarded with lower life insurance rates. Head over to their website, healthiq.com paceline, and find out just how much your riding can save you. Once again, that's healthiq.com paceline. And now, onto the program. If you're going to call your coffee shop Handlebar, well, then you better have the chops to back up that name. Aaron Olson does. I like the freedom of being on two wheels. I like um, after school at that time, really being out there, just riding, and always tried to have the mentality that even though we grew up in pissing down rain in Oregon, my father always would say, well, so are the, all the kids in Europe, so the difference that's going to make between you and them is who's, who's going to be out there in the rain and putting in their dues. So, And, of course, all the Europeans have no problem doing that. Neither did I. We hear about Aaron's journey to the pro peloton in Europe and how he found his passion and partner along the way. But first, Patrick and Fatty hand out a few awards. Oh my goodness. I'm so excited. Are you <laughs> verklempt? I never, ever expected to win this award. Welcome to The Pace Line, the podcast on two wheels, show number 48. In podcast years, that makes us middle-aged now, Patrick. What do you think of that? Uh, yay? It makes sense, doesn't it? <laughs> middle-aged guys in a middle-aged podcast. For uh, middle-aged three cheers people. for consistency. <laughs> yep, and at eight, at an average of an hour per show, you could theoretically now do nothing but listen to this podcast for two days straight, which, by the way, we totally recommend. And yeah, let us know how that goes. Especially for all, all people doing 48-hour mountain bike races. <laughs> so Fatty and Patrick here today, obviously, with Hottie still on hosting hiatus. And, of course, yeah. I did not pre-write that alliteration, but I love it. <laughs> and yeah. you will still hear Hottie and his magnificent voice later in this episode in an interview he conducted, you know, so you won't go through your hottie withdrawals too severely. Uh, so, Patrick, yeah, how's how's the riding in Santa Rosa right now? Um, the mornings are chilly, so I'm not getting out as early as I might otherwise. I can still see frost on the roof uh, this morning. So, yeah, I'm happy to be inside right now. But uh, I went for a pretty stellar mountain bike ride yesterday in Annadale. And as it would happen when I was finishing up, or once it was finished up, I uh, went to the trail house, as you do here now, mm -hmm. uh, with a buddy of mine. And who comes rolling up as we're sitting there but Hottie. He's actually on vacation in Napa County right now. And he rode from Yauntville uh, to Santa Rosa, um, taking some of the hillier roads in between. Um, and so got to spend a little time with him and his wife and we, uh, yeah, clinked a few beers. Um, so yeah, I, it was my first chance to be in a room with him and I don't know, six months. Wow. Yeah. And, and you're heading out on a group ride right after we finish recording this episode, right? Yeah. And honestly, I wish it was going to start at noon and not 10. <laughs> <laughs> it's still going to be in the forties here. 
Oh, well, you're getting no sympathy at all from me because I I figure about half of our listeners want to shoot me for that right now. (laughs) And I'm recovering from hernia surgery. So the only writing I'm getting right now is low intensity on the trainer. I'm actually doing my trainer road workouts at about 80% of my normal level. And I'm watching season six of Game of Thrones. But you're so, actually back on the bike in some measure, so that's a it win. Helps. It helps. Yeah, it's better than nothing, that's for sure. <laughs> okay, yeah, it's the little victories, right? <laughs> it is. Well, folks, it is the final episode of the Pace Line for the year, which means really nothing since it's not like we're taking a break or anything. But still, we are required by podcast law to give out end-of-year awards. And Patrick, please explain how the categories were selected and by what criteria they were judged. Um, I totally blindsided you with that ra- question, didn't I? Random, <laughs> random creative urge. I, I mean, I don't late think, night phone call. <laughs> yeah, this. I mean, we can't really claim that there was an academy, and we don't. You know, we're not giving awards for you know best performance in a you know comedy or or science fiction you know whatever um hey these are a little more winged yeah they're they're winged for sure but (laughs) i would say that they're still incredibly prestigious well i hope so i mean absolutely don't trivialize these man yeah i want to redecorate my place and i'm figuring i'll have lots of gold things to start hanging now (laughs) oh so you figure you're going to win well i wrote half the awards so (laughs) <laughs> oh, should I not have? Mm. Oh, no, we gave something away early. That's oh, terrible. I think it's time to, uh, I think it's time to begin. Let's not keep our listeners in the, what is almost certainly terrible suspense that they are experiencing <laughs> right now. Okay. So first up is the shrinking cube of interest. Uh, this is awarded to the podcast commentator who cares less and less about one of the primary topics covered in his podcast uh which is professional cycling and um fatty actually we're going to award that one to you oh my goodness i'm so excited are you <laughs> verklempt i never ever expected to win this award um except for i did write this one so i guess i i deserve it <laughs> no i and i'm it is true i um i don't i don't even track pro, uh, pro cycling much anymore we talked about this in the last podcast but yeah um i care a lot about riding and i care a lot about racing by which i mean my racing and my friends racing and interesting races that independent promoters are putting on you know i i care a lot about what the bike monkey guys are doing and i care a lot about what uh you know what the next uh, racing of the Crusher and the Tusher or the Park City point-to-point is going to be. But, you know, Tour de France, uh, there's going to be one this year, right? <laughs> and that's pretty I, much all I know. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I, I'm figuring that Chris Froome's going to win it, you know. So, mm-hmm. I, I I mean, there's not a lot of point in covering it because we know what's going to happen. Yeah. Still, <laughs> super nice that I got an award related to this. So, yeah. Th- thank you, me, for awarding myself that award. <laughs> Okay, and so what's I, next? I would like to announce the next one, which is the Goblet of Marketing Kool-Aid. And this is given to the cyclist most likely to read all the marketing copy to try to find the rational underpinning of some product performance claim. And for that, I'm going to give you 
that award, Patrick. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't, I don't know that I'm supposed to really feel all that upbeat about this, but I'm, <laughs> I'm guilty as charged. Uh, <laughs> you read the whole press release, huh? Yeah, I do. I do. And I'll ask all the questions I can if I'm actually at, uh, you know, a product presentation and I'm always looking for some way to justify, you know, what immediately comes to mind is, you know, 9R, 10R, 11R, uh, all the carbon stuff from Specialized. It's just, you know, it's numbers. And it's like, well, give me something to work with here, guys. Um, you know, I'm willing to buy in, but I want something that, you know, relates to, oh, just let's broadly call it reality. <laughs> That's a good thing. A good thing to call it in a, in a broad sense. I personally have very little to do with reality and don't recognize it when I see it. But uh, glad that you're seeing it. <laughs> don't recognize it when you see it. Uh, okay, moving right along. The pill bottle of prophylactic happiness. Um, we're going to give this one to the cyclist who was recently discovered through experience brought on by Dr. Mandate that he's not immune from moodiness. He just previously had an effective way to keep it at bay. Um, and Fatty, I don't think you'll be too surprised to find out that you're getting this one. <laughs> because I wrote the award like 15 minutes ago. <laughs> well, I, I, I was going to keep and that also between because us. because it's true. Well, there is that, yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, boy, this is, uh, you know, I mentioned, of course, the hernia surgery earlier in the episode, but... I have been having a real rough time with this. This is the first surgery uh, or anything that has kept me off my bike for more than a week or so ever, you know, since I started riding when I was in my late 20s. And, you know, now I'm 50. And, you know, so I've been on a bike more or less day in and day out, not for any reason except for I love to ride my bike um, for 20 years. And suddenly, you know, for you know, two weeks, I couldn't write at all. And now I'm getting in some sort of like, sort of kind of writing, but not outside writing. I'm mm -hmm. not supposed to, I'm not supposed to go uphill, basically, you know, I'm not supposed to, you know, put, you know, use my core quite yet, you know, just my legs. And boy, it is rough. And I am a full on miserable to be around grouch. Uh, I'm about to bite your head off, Patrick, and you haven't said a single thing. <laughs> no, I'm, ask, ask my ask my family. I uh, it has been uh, a real treat to be around me recently. Um, I, but I can man. totally imagine, and, and it's funny because I've been getting an earful from a couple of friends recently about if you guys say anything else about having not ridden in the last two weeks, I will personally slit your throat. Um, <laughs> And, uh, you know, I mean, it's one of those things I tried to explain, Hey, you know, reality is pretty subjective, you know, what off the bike for you, you know, is, and what off the bike for me is, are, are two different things. And, mm -hmm. you know, like you, I only look at it as, you know, well, it's this or antidepressants, yeah. you know, <laughs> choose one. Um, and I'm, you know, I know which way I want to go. Um, but. Yeah, it, you know, we all have a different threshold on this stuff. And, I, you know, we can kid about it, but, you know. Um, well, I mean, it, and the, the reality is my mood, my baseline mood is no longer what I am like without cycling. My baseline is what I am like with cycling. When you have ridden as often as I do, you know, that becomes my perceived normal personality. Right. And so 
subtract cycling and it's not like I go back to what I think of as, you know, who I am. It's a serious dip. I mean, all of the, you know, the balance and the self sense is kind of jacked with. And it, I mean, I really do look forward to my, you know, 90 minute, you know, one hour, whatever session that I now have on the, on the trainer, you know, my, my, which is my tarmac, uh, set up on a kicker, a Wahoo kicker, uh, watching Netflix, um, and using trainer road for, you know, workout variants, just, you know, for people who are interested in that kind of thing. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, that's like, it's a super important part of my day. It's something that I really look forward to because, you know, I'm, I'm back to, you know, being a little bit more of who I am. So, wow. Uh, uh, it's and honestly way more pronounced of this kind of experience i expected a dip but nothing like this way more than i expected yeah it's not easy so yeah, yeah. all right but enough of that let's let's move on to yet another award and we've got a lot of these the delta cup of untapped wisdom to Ooh. the cyclist oh yeah it sounds impressive <laughs> the, to the cyclist most knowledgeable on training techniques yet least likely to use them Patrick, I'm uh, sad to yeah. say that you get this one. <laughs> yeah, guilty is charged yet again. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's like, you know, I've, I've got two different bikes with power meters on them. And I have yet to do uh, a 20-minute FTP test. <laughs> really? You've never yeah, done yeah. one? Well, it's an experience. Oh, I mean, no, really I'm clear is. on that. It's it's not like I'm unclear. Remember what the award is I'm getting here. I'm yeah, yeah. exactly clear on what it will tell me and what I need to do to do it. And um, my I point have... was actually more along the lines of, yeah, you understand intellectually, but it is a life altering experience to do an FTP test. Well, you, you need to understand it in your gut. Yeah, as someone who, you know, really uh, understands the spirit of cycling. This is something you got to feel, dude. Well, here's the thing. You know, back in the mid to late 90s and early 2000s, um, I don't know. I probably did a Conconi test, you know, uh -huh. a, a dozen times, a dozen and a half times. I know what that experience is. Sure. You know, uh, I and, and I really do know it in my gut. I mean, you know, it's it's not... It's a little different, but not terribly different, but it's still, you know, it's roughly 20 minutes of, oh, I'm sure I'm going to puke now or, well, no. Uh, okay. Yeah. Now I'm going to puke. Um, <laughs> yeah. Here it comes. Yeah. Now I'm going to, you know, oh, there uh, it is. <clears throat> um, fortunately though, truly, I, I never actually puked, but there were any number of times it's like, this has got to be the last time I'm ever going to do this test. And then, you know, yeah, I did it twice more that season. Um, so. But back yeah. to the award. And... <laughs> I know how to do one. Yes. Uh, you know, I, I know how to do. Um, I know how to build a schedule for myself and, you know, how to plan my weeks and, you know, working on muscular endurance. I know how to do all that stuff. But you just <sighs> ride for fun. I go out and I ride and every now and then I hit something and I go really, really hard. Um, or sometimes I just don't go hard. I suspect there's going to be some hard today. Um, awesome. but there, there may come a point where I'm like, you know, I'm not going to ride that hard anymore right now. You sort of subscribe <laughs> to the better off dead, uh, school of training where it's like when, you know, go downhill really fast 
And if you see a rock or tree, turn. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Those of you who are 40 plus will uh, get the reference. Otherwise, uh, look it up. Better off dead. Fantastic show. Yep. Yeah. That was was good stuff. Uh, I'm probably due for a rewatch. Oh, yeah. We should have a watching (laughs) party on the podcast. Yeah. Okay. Next up, the Diamond Pantry of Discipline. To the cyclist most able to jettison any food from his diet that won't make him faster. This one goes out to Hottie. Come on, people. You didn't think we were going to leave him out of this. Yeah. (laughs) I I mean, you know. He's like the anti-fatty. Is what he is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Uh, You two, I mean, if we caught you at the right time and him at the right time, it would be like Abbott and Costello. Yeah. Yeah. Um, He's who I wish I were. Well, most of us do. I mean, right. I can remember when suddenly, you know, like the beginning of one season, he knuckled down and was like, all right, I'm going to get serious about this. He was already a reasonably lean guy. And then suddenly it was like some sculptor went at him, you know, with a, a scalpel and he had veins standing out in spots that I'd never seen stand out on someone who wasn't like a pro cyclist. Um, it's like, whoa, holy cow, dude. Um, and you know, yeah, season after season and, you know, one night, uh, one of the, one of the teams he and I were on, we had a little Q and a with him. It's like, what the hell did you do, dude? Um, and he talked about going through his pantry and like pulling out a box and he's like, oh, five grams of fat, huh? Okay. Boom. In the trash. Uh, 16 grams. Oh, really? No way. Okay. That's in the trash. And just tossing stuff in the trash. Um, and we all sat there dumbfounded and, you know, kind of nodded our heads like, okay, so that's how you do it. All right. And then he, I can't say he got any leaner, but he continued to be the same lean dude he was. And would every, every now and then like ride up to you on a ride and say, oh, I finally got a bottle of Pliny the Elder. You know, I had one of those. And I was like, you're kidding me. You drank a beer? Um, you know, it's like, how can that guy, you know, it's like, oh my gosh, it's, it's discipline that even the military would admire. Oh my gosh. Um, you know, just, I wish I had self-discipline. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Let's keep moving. If I could get that without trying, (laughs) then I would totally do it. Got you with that one, huh? That's awesome. Oh, that's classic. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I got it. We're going to use your 30 seconds of uninterrupted laughter as the as what we do to lead in this episode. I think that's awesome. Okay, that's uh, that's and fair. Fantastic. All right. Next up, the cheese grater of self judgment. This goes to a cyclist who maintains the form of diet while cheating on it nearly constantly. And I think we all know who this is. Fatty, it's yours. Oh, I was kind of hoping that was going to go to you. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, even when I am, you know, I, I'm currently gaining weight at a ridiculous rate. Scientists would study me or should study me, you know, just to figure out how is it possible he accumulates mass faster than he actually eats mass? But um, <laughs> the the fact is, I'm thinking, oh, I'm I'm going to be good today. Every morning starts out with I'm going to be good today, and then you know I'm 
I'm on this lean protein, you know, lots of lots of good fats, very few carbs except for immediately preceding a hard effort. You know, I have I have all the knowledge, I have all of the exp- the intention and I have a box of C's candies on my you know, to my right. <laughs> and they aren't going to just eat themselves. Although that would be kind of cool to see. So, <laughs> nom nom. Cannibal seed. Um, for those, for our friends outside of the U.S., C's candy is uh, chocolate-covered mystery candy, basically, right? <laughs> it's a box of wonderfulness. It some, leads with chocolate yeah. and ends with something sometimes even better. No, and every caramel. now and then, every some of them then, have toothpaste uh, inside. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, Let's see. I think you're up. Whose turn is it? It's, I don't even yours. know where we are anymore. The palladium. Is that palladium or palladium? palladium. Yeah. And you know some crazy words, which oddly <laughs> is fitting with this particular award. <laughs> the palladium sash of obscurity. The cycling journalist most likely to use a verb no one has ever heard. Patrick. <laughs> Why do I keep responding guilty as charged? Um, no, because you're guilty? In the manner in which you have been charged? Yeah, well, there, there's that. Yes, yes. Do I get bail on this? Um, uh, what does yeah. that word mean? Um, palladium? Yes. It, it's a it's a precious metal, and one that's perhaps maybe a little more obscure than other precious metals, which is, I thought, sort of the fitting way to do this. What are some examples of verbs you use that the rest of us don't use or know? Or care about. Oh, well, you know, now that you put me on the spot, all I can think of are, you know, simple ones like is and get and uh, ride. Um, <laughs> I know all of those words. Uh, yeah, you know, just keep listening and I'm sure I'm going to whip one out that, you know, people are going to go, oh, I'm just not even going to bother to look that up. Well, there was palladium, which, you know, that caught me off guard. So Yeah, but that's a noun. You yeah, know, I, I, I'm more about the verbs. I, you know, i consider myself a full-time verb wrangler. And yeah, I, I do learn from what I read from you. I, on the other hand, uh, you know, I, I got my linking verbs and I got my, <laughs> I got my, my six or eight action verbs and that pretty much does it for me. That's on, a, on yeah. to the next. Yeah, there you go. I believe. Mm-hmm. And that would be the Goldilocks Tempurpedic Saddle of Perfection to the cyclist most desperately in search of the perfect gravel bike. And that would go to Hottie. Yeah, poor guy. I mean, he and actually he and I actually trade email about his search for the right gravel bike as much as we trade emails about this show. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> and we trade a fair amount of email about the show. Um so, yeah, he's been on this quest for more than a year now. It goes back to, you know, since before the start of the pace line. Um, he's been checking stuff out, you know, anytime he can get out to a demo day or, you know, like when we were at Outdoor Demo at Interbike. Um, he's always on different stuff. And, I mean, he's got a cyclocross bike, you know, with disc brakes, but the handling just isn't there for him. And, you know, we, when he first was kind of doubtful about it, we went through the geo chart and I was like, well, look how high the bottom bracket is. You know, this thing, it's, it's made for cyclocross. It's not really made to take uh, unpaved descents in Sonoma County. Um, and so ever since then, he's kind of been on the lookout for what he's going to replace that bike with. Hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, I, 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 uh, I wrote this one up cause I, 
I really feel for him and and his search. Um, you know, but I love that he's undertaken it the way he has. Um, but you know, yeah, we we hope he finds his solution soon. Alrighty, moving right along. The glass of perpetual, not quite half fullness. Um, which is a mouthful of its own fullness of mouth, uh, awarded to the cyclist who always thinks that what he really needs to be faster and better and happier is another bike. Um, now can we give an award to the entire cycling populace? I think so. Um, <laughs> it, it, this is, this is one that I, I did give to myself because it is true of myself, but I would say it's probably also true of every listener who is, Sticking with this incredibly self-indulgent <laughs> award-giving out uh, celebration we are yeah. uh, doing yeah. for ourselves, um, and yeah, I and for me right now, um, that bike is my what I am thinking of as my 500-mile bike. What is the bike <laughs> I could ride on the road for 500 straight miles? Because I have plan. And that is, you know, the the thing I'm thinking about. And it seems like if there's ever been a single ride that justifies a bike, it is this. So more on that soon. But it's, Fair enough. you know, it, it, it consumes my thoughts. And no matter what, you know, as soon as I get this bike, there will be another one that begins to consume my thoughts. So Well, duh. Yeah. I, you know, I just try to compare it to, like, you know, uh, your tool set, you know. Mm-hmm. Or, or for more professional types, you know, a machine shop or a woodworker shop. It's like, you know, another tool allows you to do another procedure that you would have difficulty doing otherwise. I, you know, I just, I want the right tool for the job. Amen, brother. Yeah. And you can never have too many tools. You can always get another toolbox if you start to feel like that toolbox is full. Exactly. Right on. Exactly. Fill the next bay in the garage. Next. Yeah. Next award, the golden rabbit hole of lyricism to the cyclist most likely to employ the language of a poet in describing the industrial design of a bicycle component. Patrick, clearly you. Well, I, you know, I'll take this one with some, some distinct pride. I will say I, you know, there are some very, very bright and very creative people out there who, you know, think about making components so that they are, you know, beautiful to look at, uh, you know, and, and catch your eye as they do the thing they do. Um, the new uh, Dura-Ace 9100 rear derailleur is a prime example of this. That thing is gorgeous. Um, and, you know, these guys, you know, the, the, the folks who do this work, they deserve a little love. And uh, I don't mind pulling out all the good adjectives for them. Amen, brother. Yeah, it's we're in the golden era of of bikes. I really do believe this. <laughs> it's so true. It's so true. Yesterday, I was thumbing through some photos of uh, different bike events I had been on through the years, and you know, five years ago, I thought I had some great bikes, and now I look at them and I think those were good. What we have now is twice as good. There is, there is just an insane sophistication and near perfection that is being expressed by bicycle manufacturers right now. Uh, it's a lucky time to be a cyclist. Love it. 
Yeah. Well, and, you know, it's true across the board because it's not just like, oh, we have these better drivetrains and we have these better brakes and whatnot. You know, when you look at the work being done by the steel frame builders and Mm -hmm. tie frame builders, um, all of that stuff is better. You know, the the sophistication of lug work being done today by guys like Mark DiNucci and uh, uh, Daryl McCulloch, uh, who goes under Llewellyn, the Australian builder, um, David Wages of Ellis. You know, you look at the lug work that those guys are doing and it is off the charts. I mean, they they make Faliero Mazi look like a chump. (laughs) <laughs> you know, this is truly the golden age of steel frame building. So, you know, you, you get this amazing steel machine and then you can put components on it that, you know, also make the original, you know, campy record, uh, you know, look like something you you might find on a Huffy. Yeah. Uh, you know, really, we should be giving awards to these guys as opposed to ourselves. <laughs> well, there there will be a, a post on RKP that takes care of this oversight on our part. <laughs> what a relief! Yeah, I you know it's like we we can we can indulge ourselves uh, well mostly because we're in charge. Yeah, um, no, there's no one to stop us. <laughs> <laughs> Especially because Hadi's not here. I know, it's um, a shame. Yeah, he would have shut this down right quick. Uh, yeah, we wouldn't have gotten more than two, two or three awards into this. Yeah. Uh, you're good man, hottie. Uh, uh, okay. So moving right along the one track mind of competitive hunger to the cyclist most obsessed with the Leadville 100. Well, I think huh. we know that this is a tie between you and hottie. I am going to rest that one from hottie's grip. I am. Cause you've been doing it longer. I've been doing it longer. I'm, uh, I'm doing number 20 this year so i i think that i think i have a claim to this award uh by virtue of seniority yeah i i i'm willing to grant that one uh you know someday even so even someday so. you're gonna be studied um <laughs> they're, they're gonna name some syndrome after you huh i i, I can't I, I just can't even think of an event that i want to do 20 times not nothing that hard my pride is matched only by my shame and lack of creativity in choosing rides, apparently. So. <laughs> okay. Okay. Um, I think you get the next one. All right. The high-carbon steel wrench of do-it-yourselfness to the cyclist most desperately, most desperate to actually spend more time in the garage working on bikes. That one definitely goes to you, Patrick, because <laughs> I do not work on my bikes at all. Well, you know, you you probably deserve some sort of award for actually helping keep uh, the the local bike economy moving by paying someone else. Um, but I just have this strange thing where I actually really enjoy working on bikes. I really do, and I wish I had more time for it. Uh, but I do love my family, so that uh, I'm I'm okay with the with what impinges upon that time. Right on. Yeah. Uh so which brings us to the King Midas touch. Of cycling contagion. Um, this goes to a cyclist who has demonstrated the greatest ability to impart cycling to other family members, an achievement heretofore unknown in the United States. And Fatty, that's yours. Um, what What is the current, uh, we'll call it body count uh, of family members who have taken up cycling in a significant way? Well, there is, of course, me. There's my wife. There is my wife's daughter, my stepdaughter, Melissa. And then uh, we've recently got our twins uh, on bikes as well. So super happy about that. That said, I think that I'm going to need to cede this award to my wife, who actually has a lot more to do 
with people in our family getting on bikes than I do. Wait, there's also a niece, right? And her husband? Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I was thinking only immediate family. So, yeah, my that's, that's uh, my blood. niece, Lindsay, and her husband, Ben, um, are both incredibly hardcore. And they're they're actually like models for Specialized now. And I, yeah. I, I claim uh, minor facilitation credit on that one. Well, I mean, you brought your wife in, and then your wife brought others in with your help. I, you know... Uh, if we want to make this, yeah. if we want to make this a joint award, uh, like one of our earlier ones. Oh wait, no, that you stole that one from Hottie. Um, okay, <laughs> we we need a joint award, so we'll do this one. Okay. Hey, always happy to have a joint. No wait, uh, <laughs> that's my neck of the woods. <sighs> the greener grass reboot of alternate reality. Never had a joint, <laughs> by the way. I have never actually had a joint, and I met Floyd Landis last summer. Anyway, back to the greener grass, <laughs> completely different kind of grass, reboot right. of alternate reality to the cyclist most willing to toss it all for an unknown area code and roads utterly inhospitable to ordinary cycling. And that would go to you, Patrick. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, it's funny. I was just seeing on uh, on Facebook yesterday, um, uh, you know, in your, your old stuff that it gets reshared to you, you know, share this memory. Um, I, a comment that I'd made, my first public comment back in 2011 of how I'd fallen in love with Santa Rosa and was planning to move. Um, and it's <laughs> like, wow, okay, well, we made it happen. It took a little while. Um and yeah, it's funny, the more I'm here, I, you know, I, I love the riding, um, but there's something, I, I'm probably going to get studied too, but there's something about the roads here. It's like, you probably shouldn't really love the riding here because of the condition of so many of the roads, uh, some of which I'm about to go and ride. Yeah, just huh. beat up stuff. Um, it's not... <sighs> but you know, I travel out to Santa Rosa every year for the Grand Fondo and it's absolutely worth it. So yeah, the, the actual quality of the chip seal is not top notch. However, if you look left and right, the it's, reason why you're out there yeah. becomes super clear very fast. Yeah. And that's the thing. It's, you know, this is, you know, this is like real love, you know, it's like yep. when you're, when you're first infatuated with somebody, you want to go to the movies with them and, you know, you want to climb between the sheets with them and, you know, you want to do things with that person, but you're not really in love with a person until you're kind of psyched about, well, let's go to the grocery store together. You know, that's when you really love somebody is when you'll do the daily chores with them. Um, and that's kind of my love for Santa Rosa. It's like, yeah, this road might might be beat to hell, but <laughs> I still like it. I still like being out here. I like riding in the redwoods. Um, you know, I like the canopy. I like the views. Um, but you don't ride these roads because of your love for roads. Yeah. Uh, it's something a little different there. You yeah. found a home. I did. I did. Nice. Um, all righty. Well, let's see. We're up to the holy divining rod of good residence location. Speaking of living places, uh, this one goes to the cyclist who picked a house based on, based on its proximity to a great road ride and decent distance to a great trail network, only to discover another excellent trail network nearby and have a mind-blowingly awesome trail network spring up within two miles from where he lives. Fatty, this one's yours, but only by a nose. <laughs> I did get lucky um, picking where I live. I, I live in Alpine, Utah, 
where is which is close to the Alpine Loop and uh, which is one of the roads that the tour of Utah always goes over for the Queen stage. Um, you know, that's that I picked where I live because of that climb, uh, and that's a road ride. Uh, what I didn't realize is that a mile from my house is Lambert Park, which is a great little mountain bike trail network. And there was no way I could have known that Corner Canyon, a trail network that did not exist when I, I, I mean, there were a couple of trails there, but it wasn't what it is now. An actual incorporated, owned, and developed trail network that has, I think, like 50 to 60 miles of single track with more coming in all the time is being built up and that's my backyard oh, yeah yeah uh you you've got I, me uh, i mean we have a pump track now but it's more than two miles from home oh yeah corner canyon has a pump track too um so it's yeah, i don't use it but it's you know i'd love to learn so but no i just i can't believe my good fortune as a cyclist and <laughs> uh you know i i'm kind of hoping that some of the guys who you know the the city council for draper utah hears this and knows that there is a guy in alpine utah who is happy every single day that they do the amazing work that they do so yeah another you know another bogus award for me uh that ought to you know express well expressing true gratitude and appreciation for anyone anywhere really who does the good and hard work of creating and maintaining trails Amen to that. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I'm on board with that one. Right on. So we're down to the last couple. And this yep. one is the Cleansing Breath of Tolerance Award. And that goes to the cyclist and seasoned radio professional who has put up with a couple of know nothing audio goofballs on a nigh weekly basis. And that one? I hope it's hottie. Yes. <laughs> it definitely goes to hottie. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. The, the Pace Line is a great sounding podcast. By and large, and uh, that totally the credit for that hundred percent goes to Hottie. He yeah. he wrangles this show and put does a fantastic job with it. So yeah, if you, if you like the pace line, what you really like is Hottie, is what I would say. Yeah, because without him, we'd simply be mailing cassettes to people. <laughs> so we should do that. <laughs> the cassette subscription program. Oh, boy. Okay. <laughs> okay. Final um, prize. Final. The Conflict of Interest Commemorative High Five. That goes to the cycling blog that gives awards only to the uh, to those who host the show. And that's the pace line. Yay! <laughs> we really need to put in some uh, an applause uh, sound effect right there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, an applause track as opposed to a laugh track. We don't really need help with that, do we? Yeah. oh everyone thanks uh hope you enjoyed that and i think every single one of those was super well deserved you know just really inspiring and i personally feel much better about myself now that i am an award-winning podcaster (laughs) oh hey there's a there's a thought yeah yeah we are now award-winning podcasters Fantastic. <laughs> so, coming up next, Hottie has an interview with an ex-pro who raced through some of the cycling's darkest times. It came out with a clear conscience and a really cool business. Let's take a quick break before that, though, for a word for our sponsor. All righty. So, uh, as we've mentioned before, our podcast is sponsored by Health IQ. 
when I went looking for life insurance after my son was born, I realized that I wasn't getting any credit for the fitness I'd gained through cycling. I'm fit, and they asked some really basic questions about, you know, how much I weighed, how tall I was, that sort of thing. But now there's a company that helps you get better rates for life insurance, whether you ride or engage in other aerobic activities. Health IQ. They've negotiated lower rates with big insurers like New York Life because it's known that people who are fit have a 45% lower cancer risk, an 18% lower heart rate risk, uh, heart disease risk, and up to 28% lower risk of early death. We've got a special landing page for Paceline listeners. Um, it's healthiq forward slash Paceline, but we've got a link on our uh on our show notes that'll take you right there. You can drop by and see their research, see testimonials from people, and also check out some quizzes they have uh, to see what you know. Um, and like I said, there's a link in our show notes. So now back to our show. Um, Hottie was up in Santa Barbara and interviewed ex-pro Aaron Olson, who uh, rode with the High Road Formation and is now uh, one of the owners of Handlebar Coffee Roasters there in town. Um, This is perhaps as natural a fit as you get with cyclists. Bikes and coffee. Hello, Paceliners. Michael Houghton here. Hope you are doing well, finding time to ride, hanging out with friends and family. You know, one of the places I love to visit is Santa Barbara. And who wouldn't? It takes all that is great about California and adds a Mediterranean flair. It's a college town, the Côte d'Azur, Tuscany, and Catalonia all rolled into one. For riding, there's the coast, the wine country, and the beyond category, Gibraltar Road. But if all those things about Santa Barbara were to disappear, I would still go. I would go because I love to sit at Handlebar Coffee, the no-attitude, non-hipster, bike-centric, local roasting coffee shop started by former pros Aaron Olson and Kim Anderson. These are two of my favorite people in cycling and in coffee. Unfortunately, Kim is a little microphone sigh, so it's just me and Aaron for this one. I caught up with him where he spends most of his time, Handlebar Coffee Roasters on Cannon Perdido, just off State Street in Santa Barbara. We're going to talk about your cycling career, obviously, because it's a big part of your life. But the first time I met you was at a bike race, but you weren't racing. You were selling coffee at the Poor College Kids Road Race, not far from where we're sitting now, in Santa Barbara County, up on Zaka Station Road. And you and Kim were up there with bags of freshly roasted coffee on a table. I'll never forget this. You look bright-eyed and very optimistic, yet a little scared, maybe, about what you were doing. You were trying to convince people to to buy your coffee. And here I come, Mr. Skeptic. I had already had a little experience drinking coffee. I'm like, all right, good luck, kids, with the coffee thing. But I bought some. It was very good. Um, how far have you come since that day? That's pretty funny. Yeah, it's, we have come a long ways, but it's, it's been pretty cool. We've had so much support from locals and people that want to see us succeed that it's been uh, great. I'm sure that like anything you do that's new in life, you have a little bit, you need to be a little bit nervous. That's, it kind of helps you like in, in sports or in anything really. That nervous energy is, is helpful. You can use it in a positive direction. Uh, we've gained tons of knowledge and we continue to gain lots all the time because that's how we're driven as, as two people. Nothing's really good enough, so we always want to try to improve on it. Um, and then coming up on Tuesday and like three days from now, Two days from now, we'll have been open five years, and we were roasting uh, coffee for a year before that out of a out of a garage of some friend's house, and going to some local races just while we were uh, just getting our feet wet and trying to get the name out there a little bit. 
it was pretty fun just to go to some of the sporting events, not racing, but see familiar faces and meet new people as well and try to share, share some of our coffees. So let's get to the racing career first. Now, let's take us back to your days in Eugene. How did you get from Eugene to what is now UCI Tour level? I was pretty fortunate growing up. I had my uncle and my father who were both really into cycling. Um, my father couldn't ride because he had polio when he was a kid, but my uncle was one of the early racers in Oregon back in the 60s, maybe the first 10 racers that were... There wasn't a lot of people, but he was at a pretty high level for the state. And they got me into it. I did BMX racing when I was really young. I got to be a national class uh, kid for my age group in, in that discipline. And I really enjoyed it. I like the discipline of, uh, I have a lot of self-discipline. So I like being out training and, and, and seeing improvement. And then slowly evolved from that into road racing when I was 12 years old. And I like the, I like the freedom of being on two wheels. I like um, after school at that time, really being out there just riding and always tried to have the mentality that even though we grew up in pissing down rain in Oregon, my father always would say, well, so are the, all the kids in Europe. So the difference that's going to make between you and them is who's, who's going to be out there in the rain and putting in their dues. So, and of course, all the Europeans have no problem doing that. Neither did I. Did you know, did you know back then that at an early age that that is what I want to do. I want to ride a bike and try to do it for a living. Yeah, definitely. I, I wouldn't necessarily say when I was BMX racing, that was the ultimate goal or thought. But when I got, to, I would say by the time I was 14 years old, that that was something I was definitely aspiring to do and not, and more than just, oh, I want to, because I was, you know, really kind of focused on that. Thinking one day when watching the tour and those guys thinking that one day I'd like to do a grand tour and, and, and you know, start the long uh, battle uphill to, to try to achieve that level. And I think the main reason why I achieved it over maybe some other people who were more talented, my age group, or, or equally as talented, was just sticking with it, persistence, perseverance, all the things that I guess they teach you now. But I mean, I had really good support from my family, not money. They did, they were, I grew up pretty poor by American standards, but, but uh, as much help um, and willingness, support from them, not like, oh, you have to go to college now. Which, so that was... Um, who were your early race, road racing idols? Uh, probably all time is Miguel Indurain, just because he was a really modest person, a big guy, kind of like you know people consider myself like a tall guy for cycling, as you you know like you are as well. Um, I don't think we're like really that big, but on a bike, it was just cool to. Uh, I, I mean, I was raised really to be modest, and I think I am as a person, but I like to try to achieve a high level in whatever I do. So to look up to somebody who was so talented in time trialing and and just a really great person all around was pretty spectacular I, I think I really like uh, Alejandro Valverde these days just because he's so uh, well balanced he can really do anything on a bike and he's also a really nice guy um, so how did you make the leap to Europe how did that happen uh, I was pretty fortunate uh, after being uh, well I, I qualified for the national team so I spent a few years over when I was under 23 in Belgium and was under the wing of our national team director Noel de Jonker who was professional and really a great bike racer and really good with young juniors and, and under 23 riders so we learned how to ride in the wind the rain echelons cobblestones all of that which was priceless that was probably the best uh, couple years of really learning to see if that's what you want to do and be in the most miserable weather and, and crashes and, and harsh conditions and if you kept going then apparently that was something that you liked and then um the real, the, big, the real big change was um, kind of the big break for me was to be able to race on a big pro tour team was Chris Horner was switching teams. I think he was going to Francaise de Joux. No, possibly. He went from Francaise de Joux 
back to Sonia Duval, and he was leaving. Sonia Duval wanted an American rider, and he put a good word in for myself. Just knowing him from the peloton, we both lived in Oregon. We didn't know each other that much. He just knew I was a clean rider and knew I was would, was solid and would be able to work day in and day out and, and put in a good effort. But I, you'd, you'd come back here during that time, right? Uh, yeah, I was racing with the under-23 team, and then I was racing some in the States, and then after the under-23 team, I had a couple years here when I was riding for Colavita, and in 2005, I had a really great year. I was placing top five in almost almost every race throughout the year, and was just putting in solid performances, and really looking to try to get a, a contract over there. Mm-hmm. Max Testa was my coach, so I was doing crazy amount of training and but I really wanted it so I was just pummeling myself to try to better better my level and but it really kind of was I think I had a lot to do with Chris he doesn't think so he says all I did was just make a phone call or say your name but they and then just also the fact that Scott Bicycles was a sponsor at that time they were they wanted American on the team and yeah Tim Johnson was on previously then Chris Horner and then myself so they kind of kept an American on my succession there, and then the Spanish years. Describe those with the Spanish team. It was great. It was it was great. They were like the ni- some of the nicest people. They would never leave the the last person at the dinner table alone. So it was always someone would always sit with uh, like you were family. They were really really treated everyone, even though I was just an American to them. But they didn't treat me like that. I mean, it was it was pretty special. They were all really really a group, good group of guys, and we had uh, Gilberto Simone on the team as well. Um, other riders that ended up testing positive at the time, like Ricardo Rico and Piepoli, but they were, they were, you know, they treated me, they treated me well, and they were, I didn't really have much, I didn't do a lot of racing with them, but we had a... There were, there were troubling times during those race times for you, and you, I would gather, had to do a lot to stay out of trouble, or, I mean, I, what we hear from other teams is there were a lot of pressure on riders who didn't participate in a program to do it. Sure. How, did, were you affected by that at all? I was actually pretty fortunate. I think previous... To the, I think in the early 2000s, it was definitely that. It was like a lot of pressure um, on Sonny Duvall. I think you had to go looking for it, and I wasn't, I didn't have any interest in it. But there was definitely guys that were lit up like, uh, lit up in the dark. Um, they glowed a little. They glowed. They, glow, they glowed. Yeah. And there was a there was a handful of them that tested positive, and it was known as a, I guess, a fairly. Looking back at it now, I found out it was more, it was kind of a team, a transition team where there was some riders riding clean, and the other guys who were had a bad year or didn't you know they got the team was able to get them for a, a good price and then they were really wanting to prove themselves so um for me it was perfect it was a perfect stepping stone they never gave me any pressure i never saw anything but i definitely knew of riders who weren't you know the same guys that everybody knew i guess they were they were you know doing everything that they felt they wanted to do or needed to do to be at a high level but my whole mentality my whole life was to see how far i could go in the sport riding clean and it never really came it never really became a something I thought about or needed, felt, felt the need to, or even, yeah, it was just, I was able to do what I wanted to do at a high level. I didn't need to win the Tour de France, but I wanted to be able to be proud of what I was able to do at the end of the day. And then T-Mobile came calling. I had a two-year contract with Sony Duvall, so they were nice enough in a way to let me out of my second year because T-Mobile is such a big team, and Mauro Gianetti, Swiss general manager of Sony Duvall, was an amazing bike racer in his day and he's like I he always wanted to ride for T-Mobile and he never was able to so he's like I wouldn't want to hold you out of being able to I mean I had a lot larger contract with T-Mobile but it wasn't mainly that and in fact Sony Duvall was um was actually looking back at it was probably a better place for me 
because it was a little bit less corporate and it was more like a family and T-Mobile was 18 nations and just a, a lot more money but with that came and that was the first that was actually when I had a you know a director mention like oh you know I went prior to the tour of Italy that my hematocrit was 42 it was just kind of like just looked at me like I was ridiculous for having such a low hematocrit like I wasn't taking it seriously it was kind of how it was stated so oh. But still, there were some good times there. I mean, there were some good race moments there for you. Yeah, it, yeah, it was great. I mean, I was able to do the Giro Tour of Italy in 2006 with Sony Duval my first year and ride for Simone, who was third overall. We won a couple stages overall. So that was, that was for me, legendary. That was, like, pretty much, I wouldn't say achieving my goal in life in cycling, but was something I had been working for my whole life. And then again in 2007 with T-Mobile and my uh, really good friend Marco Pinotti, who was, we were teammates together on Sony Duval the year before, he was in the leader's jersey for, I think, six days, so we rode on the front. So that was pretty special to ride for an Italian in his in his home country and a really nice guy, like just super nice, just really re- well-respected and maybe five-time Italian time trial champion, three-time Italian time trial champion. So that was really cool. And it, team, the T-Mobile situation ran out. They ran, why did that come to an end? You ended up back in the States. Uh, I just had a one-year contract with them, and then Operation Puerto came out in the middle of the Tour of Italy, and Ulrich was in the race, and many riders like that, and I think I was just, after being over there and kind of beating my head into the ground, against knowing that I was 100% clean, and, and knowing that, and I guess realizing after a couple years how much and how not, how not clean the sport was, I, re- I appreciated being at the level I was and being there, but I didn't really, I could see that I could only achieve certain le- certain goals um, or certain level being clean, and I wasn't willing to do anything anything more than ride under my own my own power. So I was just wanted to come back to America to kind of see and not just be around people always talking about drugs or drug scandals. And when we were in after Operation Puerto, we we're doing a training camp in Germany, and everyone's just yelling EPO to us. So I was just kind of like that had nothing to do with me, but yet I was being by association, I guess, just as a cyclist, not even on a German team. And I, I just think I wanted to like I wanted to stay in Europe because that's where the sport is. It wasn't you know it's ten times better there than it is in America. But I wanted to come back to America and and see how well I could do here. It took me about a half a year to kind of readapt to the length of races here and and from doing when we did eight hour stages in the Giro back to back and they're doing three and four hour intense races in America. But it definitely takes a while to transition. Yeah. And then the economy kind of. Uh, Delivered your career another blow, it sounds like. Yeah, I was supposed to have a really good contract. I was talking to BMC. I was talking to, I think at that time it was HealthNet or United. It was, it was in a transition from Uni, uh, healthcare to Unite, or, uh, HealthNet to United Healthcare. Mm-hmm. And I had a, we had a contract all set up verbally, but it was in the mail, but it got, it got pulled out kind of out, one of the sponsors pulled out in the last minute. So I ended up going into 2000. I guess I was 2009 without a con. I rode for Bissell in 2008 mm-hmm. and had a, had a pretty good year there, but not nearly as good a year as I had hoped for. And then 2009, I thought I had a good uh, contract. And at the same time, as same week or two as that, kind of the stock market and a lot of other things happened and people started pulling their money out cycling. So, yeah, it's not, I mean, it's, it, I, I would definitely, it was definitely cut short, but I don't have any regret, any great regrets. I was able to do a lot and meet a lot of great people and see a lot of the world and, Ultimately, that's how I met Kim. That's how I know you. That's how we have a cafe, and that's how we live in Santa Barbara. So, yeah, so when did when did coffee enter this picture? I mean, at some point you're a bike racer and you're racing in Europe. You're from Oregon, where coffee is huge. What 
and what part of all we just discussed is coffee in your life? Yeah, well, the last couple of years, Kim and I, uh, I mean, well, spending half a dozen or 10 years in Europe and you, cafe culture is the epicenter of seems like every little village or town or city you're in and us being away from our family and friends you spend a lot of time at a cafe after after you're done even on a five or six hour day training because you want to be out and people watch and just kind of be out and enjoy the city so uh, I would say the last couple of years of our career we started talking about when we were done with cycling it would be kind of cool to try to bring a little bit of that European cafe culture to wherever we lived and we were living in Santa Barbara the last couple of years and I mean, it already existed in Santa Barbara to a certain degree, but we wanted to build a place that hopefully was uh, approachable to any any walk of life and any person and try to make them feel a little bit more than just hopefully great coffee, but accepted in a little a little place uh, away from home where they could enjoy reading a book, meeting friends, studying, just listening to music, whatever it may be. Now, you mentioned Kim. You better uh, briefly tell us about Kim because Kim is, I don't call her shy, but she uh, leaves the talking to Aaron regarding Handlebar and, and your story. But Kim, a hell of a racer and a, a great partner here at Handlebar. Yeah, Kim is the, pretty much the one that holds it all, holds it all together. She uh, has a, even a, you know, a way better resume in, in professional women's cycling than myself. And she rode for High Road Sports for seven years, I believe it was, with Ina Teutenberg and Judith Arndt and all the top women in the world. Um, she's my business partner, my girlfriend. We've been together 16 years, I think it is now. And we're both in the trenches day in and day out on the bike when we were training quite a bit, which is rad to have a partner to, to at least start the day with. And now, you know, every day in, in the cafe. And I couldn't have asked for a, a better business partner and, and girlfriend to spend, spend my life with. So. so describe the difference between the coffee you found in Europe and what you came across and what you try to do with handlebar i think i really fell in coffee uh, fell in love with coffee when we were in italy just because it was kind of mind-blowing you could go to any gas station or really any any place and you could have a a pretty great cup of coffee you know espresso based drink uh espresso macchiato or cappuccino and just kind of blown away that you could do that almost anywhere but of course it makes sense that a country steeped in tradition and it's the people baristas who take it as as serious as someone who does it 30 40 years as their career there's no reason why they wouldn't be and they take so much passion and pride in what they do they have so much passion and they take so much pride in what they do that they do a great job i think on the west coast or in america or in australia different places they're able to do uh, they just they've progressed from in using Oh, scales and, and you know trying different roast profiles and things are always pushing the pushing the envelope. I think Europe's pretty traditional in their in their level, but they take a lot more pride and passion, I think, than than a lot of the I don't know English speaking countries. So just trying to take what they do and then try to build on that and I guess mimic what they do in, in many ways, but see if you can improve on it or at least try to emulate it. And because you not only decided to take on a business, a cafe, but you taught yourself to become a roaster what was that process how did you even begin to figure that out sure well i mean initially we were just going to try to be a multi-roaster uh buying coffee from two or three of the top coffee roasters on the west coast or in america and leaving the roasting up to the people who knew what they were doing and just try to start the business and, and not add too many complications to it or too many different variables but we were working really slow to try to find a spot that was a good spot for locals to come and enjoy and off of the main drag in Santa Barbara where tourists maybe would come find us but we wouldn't be on the on the main street 
And uh, so we had an extra year of time where we ended up buying a coffee roaster and, and, and just practicing for a year and trying to dial in roasts and try different coffees. And I think now it was probably one of the best things we did, but it definitely added a, a variable that was you know more challenging. Running a business on our own was beyond challenging and then adding the roasting to it too. But I think because we roast in-house, people enjoy the, the, enjoy the coffee more. I, I suppose we sell more because of that. And I think they take more pride in the fact that they're buying from a local roaster than something they see everywhere. How did those first batches go? I mean, we didn't, I mean, we, I mean, we've improved so much and we still do, we still do, but I'm sure they were, yeah, roast times are completely different now and, and experience, but I feel like just in the last six months or a year, I really feel like I'm starting to get more of a hang of learning. That's five years, five years in, but I still feel like I'm learning and now I'm going to throw myself into another uh, variable and start roasting on a different coffee roaster because we have another location under construction. Do. And we have a 22 kilo uh, pro bat, German built machine that's twice the size of what we have. So in here in your main location, that's a Diedrich or what do you have here? It's a pro bat as well, a 12, 12 kilo. But the other one's completely restored. It will have a lot more, it has a lot more temperature gauges and, and things where I can try to replicate roasts that will help me. And it's just a way better machine because it's been restored and it's just meant for more, more production and I've been roasting close to 30 hours uh, a week on this on this coffee roaster, but in just big, big chunks, 14 hours one day and another 12-hour day, and then about a half a day, uh, six hours of roasting on a third day. So I'll be able to cut that time down and really, try, I think, improve the roast and the replicability. So how many pounds of beans are you going through in a week? How many, what do you, what's your goal per week? Well, it's hard to say. We'll have, to, we're gonna have to, we'll have two cafes eventually, and we're always picking up wholesale accounts, but the goal for us isn't really to try to build or grow too much it's just to try to improve quality and i think with that we we grow organically just because we sell more and people buy more but we don't go out seeking uh wholesale accounts they just come to us usually and then if it's a good match then and it works out for everyone we try to supply uh supply we mostly do it locally we we've had people reach out from los angeles but it's a little bit more complicated shipping or driving down there and i i think it's um it's better for us just to grow slowly and try to keep up. We're, we got our hands so full trying to keep up with one cafe that before we try to, I think that's one good thing is learning to be patient. And I mean, much like when training, it takes year after year of, of persistence to gain a couple of percentage points on your fitness or form. Same thing with coffee or business. You, The biggest problem I think so many businesses do is try to grow so fast that it ends up shooting themselves in the foot. So we're trying not to make those mistakes. I'm going to get a little more techie into the coffee things, not the bike things. Surprise to surprise here. But give me Aaron Olson's ideas about roasting. What are some of the things, and this may be a little too in-depth for a lot of people out there, but sorry, folks, you're listening to our passion right now, which is, which is coffee. Give me your ideas about what you look for in the flavor in a flavor profile of a coffee. What says to you, hmm, I five-starred that one? Hard to say because everyone likes something different. I mean, I, I'm really partial. I really have a, a lot of love for African coffees, especially Ethiopian coffees. And we have, uh, I think one of our best coffees we have and we've ever had right now is a natural processed coffee from Ethiopia that's super fruity, has lots of juicy body, and it's just uh, a great, great coffee. It gets the most compliments and it's the most distinct coffee of all the coffees we have. But about a year ago, we went to Colombia and met with farmers directly bought some outstanding coffees and I have this like awesome life experience that goes along with that so probably Colombia will always hold the the most the the fondest place in my in my heart for for coffee just because to meet farmers and to see how they live and and to really educate yourself 
in their country and learn about it. And the coffees we we have three three coffees right now. We'll have a fourth one that are just some of the best coffees we've ever had. I mean, I like everything from chocolatey, um, smooth, smooth drinking coffees to brighter coffees that have more complexity. So I like having something kind of different all the time. I think the coffees we sell the most are, you know, coffees from Mexico, Brazil, Guatemala, Central and South American coffees. Because um, they're familiar. Yeah, familiar. They're and I and I think, but I think people that are really into coffees like the ones from Colombia and from and Africa the most because they provide your palate with more, you know, more of a challenge or more. Yeah. There's more going on. Yeah. Uh, no surprise that you called your shop Handlebar. Was there was there much discussion on this? We calling were, it. <laughs> we were trying to find some some name that had a little bit to do with cycling, but mainly to have something to do with our past. And you have to name it something. So we had talked about the hub or different places like this, but we have friends that have a coffee shop named the hub in Reno, Nevada, and we wanted something that was distinct and nobody else had at that time. So yeah, we went through for quite quite a few weeks, and then finally when Handlebar came out, we're like, oh, that's kind of kind of nice. I think most people are, think when they're coming in, they're gonna we're gonna have tight jeans, uh, we're gonna be hipsters and have mustaches, and then they realize it has nothing to do with that. Uh, you have created a, a cycling scene here, though. I mean, quite obviously, the cyclists are welcome. You have water bottles with your logo on them, but this can be a little, a little gathering spot in itself, right? Where we have bikes lined up against the wall. Yeah, for sure. Especially on the, on the weekends when big group rides happen, or or in the winter, we can sometimes have thirty or forty uh, people show up on a, on a group ride, which is which is great to you know, to be out there on the radar of a of a nice place for for all. All walks of life to come enjoy big running groups as well. Yeah, it's uh, it's pretty it's pretty great with a lot of outdoor seating. It's nice for the cyclists to be able to enjoy. Mm-hmm. I, I remember I came in here. Uh, you were in the middle of. I think you'd open the place, and I came in here and I I looked right in your eyes, and I said, "Man, Aaron looks stressed because you had a lot going on. You had a new business. You were trying to roast." You and Kim were basically running the place. I think you were here seven days a week, and I thought to myself, I wonder what Aaron thinks is harder, a monster stage in the Giro or running a small business? Do you know the answer? That's a pretty awesome question. I think, yeah, that's, uh, I think both Kim and myself thought that after professional cycling, nothing would, well, it would prepare you for anything in life. And I think it definitely does, the work ethic and the determination. And I, I, I think that's one reason why we're, quote, successful or, and we're de- 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 determined and try to always improve. But uh, I would have said nothing would have been harder than professional cycling or day in and day out. But I think owning, owning our own business, and, and yeah, we, you're right, we were working seven days a week for the first two years, 100, 120 hours a week. I think six months without a day off until there was a holiday from like New Year's until June sometime. Or, but maybe partly that's part of the reason why we're reaping the benefits now of, of having a line out the door or, you know, that along with just locals and, and people like yourself that have come and have been supporting us from the beginning and spreading the word. And hard to say, I don't think there's, there's no one reason. I think really it's all the small details that maybe not many people notice, but they add up to a big detail or a big amount of a detail. That are that things that we try to really pay attention to, and, and are particular. Like hopefully, people have a clean table to sit down at, friendly customer service that greets them, and uh, and a great product that they leave with or, or sit and enjoy while they're there. So, and you still get to ride, I hope, right? I've ridden one time this month. Uh, no. It's a it's a little bit a little bit sad right now. I, I've been normally riding once a week or getting out and running a little bit. The last month, we've really been making a big push to hire to train. 
we've been extra busy and not not as short staff, but just trying to put a lot of effort and time into the employees we have. I think we have our best group in five years. But with that, we just always training and, and the more training and more effort and time you put into to your help, the I think the better they, they, they have they are and the better they can give to others. And we have a second location coming down the pipeline. So we're trying to figure out how we're gonna run one without us here so that we can move somewhat of our time and energy to the other one or ba- a balance so mm-hmm. we've got a lot on our a lot on our plate and riding i've been fortunate to be able to do a lot of it so if i don't get to do it for a year or so i definitely well I mean, i'll try to do as much as i can but i definitely won't yeah. let it go for too long yeah. well thanks for making handlebar thank and you for the support thanks for sharing your cool story it's uh, an interesting one and continued success thank you very much really appreciate it Again, that was Aaron Olson, owner of Handlebar Coffee in Santa Barbara. You know, that was the first time he and I had talked about his racing days and the demons that were all around him. We always talk coffee, but somehow had never gotten around to the pro thing. So it was cool to hear that part of the story. He really is a great guy. Huge smile, unassuming, gracious. Oh, but catch him on a ride and he will rip your legs off. Trust me, I know. Handlebar does sell online if you're in need of some beans. We'll have a link on RKP. But if you can, get to Santa Barbara and make sure your ride includes a stop at Handlebar. There's a classic Merck's bike hanging in the cafe. And usually Aaron's ride is parked right next to the roaster. Kim and Aaron always like to hear where customers have been riding. And they're happy to point you to a good climb or a good place to eat. Aaron and Kim, thanks from the Pace Line. And we will see you soon. Great interview, Hottie. And now on to the Pace Line picks. And Patrick. Okay, so for my pick this week, I'm going to touch on something that we haven't discussed in this show and I think is a pretty big deal. And that is the fact that, Fatty, you hit a million dollars in donations with World Bike Relief. I mean, this it's a, <laughs> it's a mind-blowing number, uh, a million and I worked it out in a post earlier this week. It's more than 6,800 bicycles. Um, I mean, dude, how did you even stay at this for so long? Well, for one thing, it really has very little to do with me. If you took a look at the total amount that I personally donated, it's pretty small. But I. But you have, rallied the troops, dude. Yeah, and, I, and really it comes down to, you know, doing a— um, I guess doing whatever it is that uh, encourages people to be kind and generous and follow their better angels, right? That I, you know, for the last, you know, however long I've been blogging, um, I've somehow managed to put together uh, the kind of audience that looks for ways to do good. And I'm lucky enough that I've had great people uh, at, and developed good relationships at great companies who are willing to donate. And I mean, we've talked about this in the podcast before, but I mean, in for this, uh, for this installment of my grand slam for world bicycle relief really fundraisers, we have, you know, Kuat racks, we have Silco, we have Cannondale and we have specialized, we have Trek, we have giant, you Tram. know, all these, Let's not forget SRAM and ZIP. Yeah. Well, for sure, SRAM and ZIP. <laughs> and, it's, and it's easy for me to kind of put them on the back burner, even though they donate more than anyone else, because I kind of bundle them mentally with World Bicycle Relief. And they deserve sure. they deserve a ton of credit, for sure. But all, um, 
how these great companies that normally compete with each other, yeah. uh, you know, they do have a great common interest. And, you know, I'm just incredibly grateful that, you know, over the long haul, people have continued to donate and donate and donate. It's not like we got to a million dollars over one year. I did the first Grand Slam contest, as I call it, in my annual big fundraiser for World Bicycle Relief in 2011. And uh, to be honest, it was a lot of credit goes to Johan Bernil. And I know it's not popular or <laughs> or whatever to be grateful to one of those, you know, old school doping guys. But Johan Brunil turned me on to World Bicycle Relief. He was one of the uh, real backers of it right from the beginning and, you know, gave me a lot of push and a lot of social media help with that. And, yeah, you know, whatever else he has done, he had a great eye for um, – for good charities, a far reaching charity. And it's yeah. one of those things that I like that you brought that up because I really find the idea that, uh, you know, just because you were involved in one of the seediest aspects of the sport, you know, once you've sinned against the sport, you can no longer do good. You know, I, there, I encounter that mindset over and over. Yeah. Uh, that, you know, people are either all good or all bad. And, and so that's simply not true, right? Oh I mean, God, it's so tiresome, yeah. you know? Um, and I, I like the idea that someone, you know, we can see real redeeming qualities in the actions of someone, you know, especially in the work of charity. Yeah. And I think it's one of the opportunities for anyone, no matter what else they've done, to do something really great. And I would say that Johan Bernil is for sure one of those people. And yeah, I'll be grateful to him forever for giving me the introduction to World Bicycle Relief, as well as a lot of introductions to pros and so forth, you know, to, to pro racers who donated, you know, signed jerseys and, you know, introductions to Trek and so forth that made it possible for me to uh, have great prizes. So, you know, I, I, I didn't I, I didn't necessarily intend for this to become a, uh, you know, a love fest and what have you for anyone. But, you know, people deserve recognition. And absolutely. And, you know, the, the fact is, also, while I'm giving recognition, uh, Katie Bowling, um, <laughs> yeah. the development director for World Bicycle Relief, you know, she's a former pro triathlete. So she knows the bike. She's an, you know, a serious athlete, very strong um, who also just has an enthusiasm and love of people and love of doing good that, uh, you know, has carried me through times when, you know, I was, you know, I would reach out to her and say, I don't think we're going to raise any money this year. And she'd be wow. like, no, let's, you know, let's try. <laughs> and, you know, she, she is just unendingly positive. Anyone who knows her knows that that is true. And, um, you know, just, the readers that I've had, uh, they're people who have consistently donated 20 or 30 bucks every year. There are people who've d consistently donated, you know, a thousand bucks every year. Uh, a couple of people who've donated 5,000 bucks every year. Uh, wow. these, there are people who have done more than their means allow and because they think it's the right thing to do. And it's incredibly inspiring. So, you know, I'm just, you know, I'm grateful to have been the guy who has given focus to this much light. Um, 
you know, I, I'm nothing but a magnifying glass and I'm, I'm lucky to be around so many good people. Uh, it's a modest perspective. Uh, I think, I think after all the other self-congratulations we've done in this episode, we can allow you that one. Um, (laughs) anyway, (laughs) um, now this is Paceline Picks, um, not a love fest. So what's your pick this week? And my Paceline pick this time is a person, um, and his name is James Wong. Uh, he has been for, I don't even know how many years, one of the most technically astute cycling journalists that uh, I ever read. I, you know, I, of course, read most of the cycling pubs. And um, when he was at Bike Radar, and now that he's at Cycling Tips, he just writes really great, strong reviews. And I think that kind of excellence on a constant basis needs to be recognized. So uh, if we were going to give you a, 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 an award, James, uh, we'd probably come up with a clever name for it, as is. You're a Paceline pick. Congratulations. The golden keyboard. (laughs) The golden keyboard of technical distinction. Yeah. I mean, you know, James, if I may, as someone who's been at, you know, technical presentations with him, if there's a quirk of a product that can give you some sort of tangible real world benefit and, you know, even before we've had a chance to get out and ride whatever the thing is. James will very often be the first guy in the room to figure out that, oh, wait, so you could do this with this and result in this. Um, he's, uh, I, you know, I have the good fortune to work with a lot of neat guys, and mm-hmm. he is exceptionally astute. He yep. really is. Yeah. Smart guy, nice guy, and, you know, technically deep out in front, but also, you know, just loves to ride and sort of keeps that in mind. So, yeah, uh, he's a... Uh, you know, he's a great guy. So, um, well deserved. Know, glad he's out there. Uh, let's just say that. So, I believe with that, that would be it for episode number 48 of the Pace Line. Yeah. And if, yeah, we made it. Whew. <laughs> On to 49. Well, Happy you, New Year, everyone. Uh, yep. We hope you're able to get out there on New Year's Day and enjoy a few new miles. Yep. By all means, and subscribe, rate, review us on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, or whatever platform you use. And so, uh, for Patrick, for Hottie, I'm Eldon, sometimes called Fatty. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week with a new episode of The Pace Life.